Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gilberto Ribeiro. Dr. Ribeiro is the Director of Innovation and Technology Transfer Coordination at the Federal University of Minas Gerais, also known as UFMG in Brazil. Prior to his time at UFMG, Gilberto was the head of the innovation office at CTEC SA, a state-owned IC manufacturer. Prior to his time at CTEC, Gilberto was a research manager at Hewlett Packard Laboratories in Palo Alto. Gilberto received his undergraduate degree in engineering from the Federal University of Minas Gerais and a PhD in physics in a joint program between UFMG and UC at Santa Barbara. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Gilberto. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa, for having me over. It's a great honor. Well, thanks so much, Gilberto, for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Gilberto, I generally like to start things off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in tech transfer and at UFMG? Oh, sure thing. Well, I have a somewhat tortuous trajectory as I started in electroengineering, then I moved into physics, and ended up in computer science working with electronic materials. In that path, I lived in different places like California for 12 non-consecutive years, and then uh, Sao Paulo, the south of Brazil, and then uh, Minas Gerais, my home state. And then I had to start labs in each place, which is a time-consuming effort. So when I joined UFMG in 2013, I had to start things all over again. And then uh, a good friend of mine suggested my name to the uh, university president elected. If I did not get my lab up and running soon enough, I'll probably get another offer and leave. So given my past in national labs and industry, I would be a good match and very busy at the TTO and thus anchored. Had no idea I was getting into at the time either. So I ended up accepting from the learning perspective. And uh, what can I say? It's been a great ride so far. Yeah, that's an incredible journey, and we're going to get into your ride so far at uh, UFMG. But before we get there, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with UFMG and tech transfer that takes place there, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Oh, sure. Yeah, Brazil is an interesting country, and it has a very good university system. But for the most part, it's funded at a federal level. And our, our university, UFMG, the F stands for federal, has been ranked uh, the top federal university in the, in the country. One important exception is the state funding system from the state of Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is, is, is almost like a different country. Uh, they're really well funded, and their two top universities, USP and Unicamp, are the, uh, at the very top. Now, when UFMG started its uh, technology transfer office about 21 years ago, 
roughly. And uh, recently, uh, in 2016, we had a new legal framework for innovation enacted, which created numerous opportunities for tech transfer partnerships, and some aspects went beyond the Bay Dole Act from the U.S. We do have some important uh, private universities, but I'll con be concentrating most of my points uh, in our chat today on federal universities because uh, uh, the federal law that created uh, uh, the, the legal framework, that's what we have to abide to when we operate. Now, Gilberto, I'm really interested if you could share with us perhaps some of the differences between how technology transfer is handled in Brazil compared to other countries. Um, most notably, I know you've spent time in the U.S., um, as well as perhaps some European countries. Yeah, well, one key difference is the stage we find ourselves at in Brazil. I mean, we have... Uh, Brazil is, is the kind of place that it's, they like to say that it's instant velocity is negative, but the average velocity is positive. So when you come here, it, it's, it's a very uh, dynamic, if you will, place. But the key point is disparity between practices within the country. Same way as happens, like uh, the wealth is unevenly distributed in the country. So just to give you an example, like uh, a startup from our university was acquired by Google into 2005, which led to the first development facility outside the U.S. But then, if I compare that to the current state of many TTOs in the uh, in the country, we they, the, some of them have only two to three people, and they're usually run by professors that have been assigned for a four-year term. So by the time they get to understand what they're doing, they have to leave, and a new guy has to come in. So that creates an, a tremendous challenges because an, a well-seasoned team is essential for success in, in technology transfer office. Additionally, there's a, a few other things. Like uh, as a TTO manager in Brazil, we're expected to teach and do research. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. So yeah, that, that's kind of crazy. Maybe it's a, some inferiority syndrome that we have to be able to do everything. The end, the end result is, is that we spread ourselves too thin and things take a long, a long time to happen. So in, t in terms of tech transfer process itself, there are many difficulties, but one of them is the type of ownership of a patent cannot be transferred, but it can be licensed. One possibility is by a public bid. So we, we basically put our patents for an open bid, and then uh, we have to pre-assign a, a, a value to it. So, and we've done that in the past. But if there's only one entrant to, to the bid, the conditions that we set are the one that we're going to move forward with, and therefore there's no negotiation. So it's really a hit or miss. And when we had that happen, the companies would not, uh, you know, uh, abide to that uh, figure that we put there, and then they'll just would, would have an empty process. Another exception is when we have co-development between the university and another company, for example. These are valid for you know, government-supported universities and, and research institutes. And, and finally, just a final thought, even though there are uh, several success cases uh, in tech transfer in Brazil, a lot happens without proper assessment not in an effective manner. And the chief factor has to do with what the university offers and the industry demands. Many professors that are trained overseas, uh, they get more exposure to the entrepreneurship uh, context overseas, oftentimes find themselves that their craft is not in high demand in the country. And co many companies see that as a blue sky research, when in fact they themselves have other problems. I mean, the companies want something else. 
in some segments, like for example, computer science, uh, agricultural business, nanomaterials, aviation, all the industry for our country, this gap is closing in, which is great. And we do find more opportunities. AI, for example, is, is growing really fast and it is an area that is prime for fruition. But as we become more competitive, uh, there's also more brain drain. We see students, professors ended up being recruited to work overseas. In a nutshell, the feeling that we have here in Brazil is that you're trying to put together a high-end lab, like say a data center, a bio, clean room, electronics, what have you, in a construction site that lacks, like for example, water, but mains and that sort of stuff. It can be highly rewarding when we get uh, something going. And it's not purely dependent upon luck, but it's heavily dependent upon patience. So that's a mandatory uh, virtue and an unparalleled learning experience. Well, that's really fascinating. And I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, you alluded to the Bayh-Dole Act. And I know that in 2016, Brazil enacted its equivalent to the Bayh-Dole Act. Can you tell us some of the differences between Brazil's law and the U.S. law? Yes, uh, the Bayh-Dole Act, for the most part, creates path for government-funded research carried out in university and national lab setting to be licensed and commercialized in a decentralized fashion. The government does retain some marching rights. I mean, when I was in a company, I also got government funding, a company in the U.S., and I do see, I did see as well marching rights. But please correct me if I'm wrong here or missing something. Um, but in Brazil, the, the law has several aspects that go beyond the funding source. It impacts primarily public servants, as myself, that are researchers and inventors and are associated with a government entity, like, for example, Federal University. As 95% of the country's research output and patent findings come from government employees, it makes sense to create a framework to deal with that. So let me just highlight a few things. For example, Insofar as the TTO is organized, it, it, it's very interesting because it allows one to have a TTO that belongs to the university completely, like or we can just put together as a provost, for example, um, for innovation. It can be completely private, shared with other entities. It could have like a, a TTO that could run, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five, whatever, uh, different federal uh, universities or, or national labs. Or like we did, I mean, we always try to do something a little bit different. We can have a mixed model, and the mixed model uh, encompasses uh, public employees and uh, employees that belong to uh, a private party. In this case, it's a foundation that supports uh, research, and I can get more into a little bit into that. For example, let's just look into the uh, uh, the way uh, the private sector operates in Brazil. For example, I cannot have a, an attorney being hired to, the, to be a government employee. So then I can use the, the private entity to hire attorneys. On the other hand, auditing and finance, it's good to have someone that belongs to the federal government. So we did this mix and match, and we found that the, uh, the equivalent of the U.S. General Accounting Office uh, that, that they found that this to be a very good model and uh, they, they loved it. They said, well, we, we, now you're compliant with our, you know, all, our predicaments here and, and then we can separate the roles. So they, they really like that. Now, and, and as a final note for that, for the TTO organization, um, 
Oftentimes we find that if you want to license a technology, having private employees conducting the license is better. Because, for example, if you have someone that is, is, is a permanent employee belonging to the government, uh, and then this person might find uh, his or her way with a professor, it might have some sort of conflict of interest. So having someone private, uh, you know, you have someone that is really free to, to operate. Uh, so that's one thing. Now, there's another thing for, for the law that is interesting, is that we can license one technology that has been developed in the university to a company that a professor started up. But this happens in a one-time deal way, right? Because we don't want to create a pipelining process here. And, and why is this great? Well, first of all, it creates opportunities for the students. The second, it keeps the professors productive and creative. And therefore, they have, all right, now I have to move a little bit into my field of expertise and I can create a new technology so that it doesn't configure itself as, as pipelining. So I have to be cognizant of that. We as DTO, I have to make sure that we do a due diligence process to demonstrate that there's no pipelining. And, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, is that the success rate of tech transfer in these cases is much higher. And the professors that are usually associated with these initiatives, they uh, retain their scientific output. In fact, they're high, highly ranked. So that we don't see any uh, issues uh, you know, that would compromise their, their scientific output. And I'll just give you a final example here that we very much enjoy, which is uh, sharing lab space with private companies. This is a tremendous opportunity because Brazil lacks competitive infrastructure for R&D companies, and very seldom we have our labs occupied 100% of the time. So this measure allows us not only to, to use our available time, but we could cost share our infrastructure. So this is great because... We, sometimes we don't have money. And, and sometimes industry will have specific needs and they end up buying equipment that we could man, maintain. So this is a, a, a very good win-win scenario. And then just to, to wrap it up, I, I, let me just uh, list a, a few things that we have in this law. Have time off for professors without losing their job. We can have 20% of the time for professor to, to work in R&D uh, in, in companies, they cannot just do, you know, uh, conventional work. They have to be working on R&D companies without a pay cut. So this is great. And possibility for university to hold equity in startup companies. And, and finally, um, another one, and there are many different things, but one that I find very interesting is the possibility for university to create funds, like uh, endowment funds. Wow, that's very fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, Gilberto. Um, I was curious as a follow-on to that, what do you see as some of the key challenges for Brazilian universities and the private sector when it comes to cooperating for innovation? Yeah, this question really sits at the crux of innovation process in Brazil. The reasons are, like, well, first of all, from this standpoint of the university, have to be able to provide a very clear message to the partners on the legal terms so that we as TTO officials can properly comply with regulation and also clear reasoning on financial terms and future obligations. So that's where we're coming from. From the venture perspective, 
they must understand that the university owns the IP and that it's his or her role to facilitate the implementation of the invention in the companies from purely technical standpoint. What I what do I mean by that? We find oftentimes that the inventors want to decide how much uh, their invention is worth. And it's a tragedy because they think that it's their baby. So they just want to jack up the price and say, no, no, it's better to have 1% of something than 100% of nothing. Exactly. And finally, from the private sector perspective, I mean, they must be cognizant of the fact that they, they pay taxes, right? But that does not mean they have free access to the university inventions or in a cooperative agreement that whatever they pay does not automatically grant them rights to use the generated IP. So understanding the importance of inventor prior knowledge and experience is really what we're trying to tap into here so that we can leverage the collaboration and accelerate the innovation process. How to price that in reasonable terms becomes a, a, a big issue. Well, I'm also curious, Gilberto, uh, how your office actually works with startups. Yeah, startups in Brazil, they face numerous problems. I mean, uh, uh, forgive me if I may sound uh, pessimistic, but it's, it, at the same time, it's exciting, but it's like... It's hard. <laughs> it's hard, it sounds like. Yeah, in the U.S., you have different problems. You have a lot, a, a, a tremendous competitive landscape. And, and here we have different problems. It's, it's an uphill battle just to... to, to you know, to create a notion that you can start up your company here. Our key role is really to look for the best way to accommodate their needs uh, within the boundaries of the law uh, allows, right? For, for example, understanding that negotiation process has dimensions that are intangible is very important and that to try to explore that to come with better terms for them. Let me just give you an example. University can take rights to dividend distribution instead of equity or cash in a patent license. So for example, I get, I, I, we can get to them and say, look, I can own the right for receiving some money in the future and, and you don't have to pay me anything up front. So that's good when they're starting because uh, the, then they don't have to put out cash for that and actually they're cash starving. But then we want to exit early so that from that type of arrangement so that they can uh, uh, be able to to leverage uh, external funding. So we try to do that as soon as we possibly can. Additionally, you can create opportunities for lab usage as long as there are no professors as owners of the company because then it would be in a situation where we have a conflict of interest. We can also provide IP strategy guidance and consulting as well. For example, help them price their inventions or and their you know, the, their values. So these are the things that we try to do. Our, our rationale is follows. Startups in deep tech, like, a, you know, companies that really explore our, our innovation and scientific output, when we license that IP, they have the best perspective to hire grad students. They're not going to find jobs other than the jobs they create themselves. Second, they get the university name out. And, and finally, they implement the novel solutions that come, come out of the lab. So these are all the dimensions that add value, but they're intangible. So I'm curious as well, um, what's your opinion on what the landscape looks like in Brazil regarding private investment in research and development? Well, that's a great question, because that explains a lot how uh, the stage we're at right now. Over the last four years, 
Brazil has fought with a high inflation rates. I mean, I was in college. Uh, this was 80s, in the late 80s. And we had like a triple digit inflation for month. It was just ouch. <laughs> just it was just unreal. But that subsided in the late nineties. But you know the macroeconomic policies that followed to keep the inflation low, they included uh, double digit interest rates that that persisted until to twenty ten or so. And what that meant for Brazilians is that uh, we're risk averse. The government pays us so well that why should I even invest on something so risky as, say, like a company, let alone a startup company, right? More recently, you know, these interest rates have been dropping. And then there also have been some IPOs in the local stock market. This all changed the scenario. Now we're starting to see some uh, VCs and other private investors looking to diversify their portfolios. For example, um, there, there are some Brazilian unicorns. I think at this time, I think we have about 10 or so, 10 uh, unicorns in Brazil. Maybe we have more. I, I, I'm not keeping up with that. Uh, foreign capital has started to flow in, uh, and, and, and we have some incipient but consistent M&A activity in the high-tech space. That are these are the ingredients that are here that are changing things a little bit. But COVID slowed that down, sadly, and put that in the back burner. But I, I, I find that as I see Brazil matures in its economic policies, investors start to move in. Overall, I'm very optimistic. Just before the pandemic, uh, in short amount of time, uh, there's a there's a there's an avenue here. It's a tiny little small version of Sand Hill Road in, in Menlo Park in California. So we have about five VCs there. I, I, and usually I go there and, 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 and I saw five VCs. Well, this is this started to look really interesting. So I, I think that once um, uh, uh, the pandemic goes away, we're going to see things turning around. Now, another important point is that there are a number of seed funding opportunities. For example, our university uh, the foundation that I described that makes that has a partnership with us to to hire our our, our attorneys and other uh, personnel, they put together a, a seed funding process, uh, uh, and, and that's great. I, I don't know how many. I think they have over half a dozen uh, seed fund initiatives for for startups from our university. And Fundep, that's the name of the funding uh, uh, the foundation that supports us, and they work from anything between like. Uh, um, import, export, payment, processing, uh, personnel payment, uh, payroll. And, and so they help us a lot. And now they have this uh, additional role, which is which is great. Wow. It really sounds like things are moving in the right direction in Brazil with respect to private investment, which is which is really great to hear. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened if COVID hadn't hit, but it will be interesting nonetheless to see how things bounce back or continue to move forward once we finally get out of this pandemic. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll touch upon the, the issues of how the COVID impact us, uh, uh, you know, in the last uh, uh, few sessions of our discussion here. Uh, but one issue is that, for example, uh, the pandemic for, for us, in particular for the TTO, it helped us to... Uh, uh, you know, improve our cost structure. So we did have a better performance from that basis. But there are other things that we'll, we'll find out as we move along. So Gilberto, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your thoughts on the importance of IP rights and IP related contracts in university tech transfer. 
Yeah, that's a very important point. Because what I like to say is that owning IP does not mean anything. But not only means that means a lot. It means that when you get to a negotiation, you have no leverage whatsoever. But the sad thing, is, as, I th- as I find in other TTOs, is that oftentimes people perceive IP generation as a metric of success, and they see an increase in academic findings. Because professors are ranked highly if they file patents. So we have, as a TTO organization, we have to exercise rigor. Right. We cannot just be lured with the possibility of being ranked highly just because we file a lot. As a matter of fact, our university was uh, the top ranked university in the past 10 years of, of filing. But I attribute that to our steady filing. It's just that we file a lot. It's just that we file steadily. So we need to keep the bar higher and higher. As a matter of fact, uh, our grant rate with our local patent office has been climbing steadily say from about like a 50% and now we're hitting like a, a 80% plus uh, hit rate. So that that's really good. That's a really impressive number. That's, that's fantastic. Congratulations. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what are some of the best practices you've developed to handle IP in university tech transfer? So the number one practice that we have is to invest the team by training. We send them to WIPO workshops. We train, uh, train them in our local patent office classes. We have them produce teaching material. You know, the best way to learn is to teach. So it's a nonstop training process. We write and file patents ourselves. So with time, we, what we find is that our analysts have developed a keen sense for, uh, for the university best areas. And that allows us to move faster. Number two is a rigor. We make sure that we do not file for numbers. We have to keep, uh, say, 50 to 60 acceptance rate of notifications. This is, the, if you ask me what that number comes from, uh, I don't know, it's just rule of thumb. And, and, and uh, at this point in time, we do not have a limit as to how many patents we can file per year. Um, and, and usually that comes about, say, from a budget perspective. So we don't put a, a, a cap on that but we do put a cap on how many we let in. Number three, connection with the licensing team. So our IP team is you know, very much connected to the licensing team. So we have internal events just to brief the licensing team so that they can know ahead of time the details of our patent portfolio. Number four, we have execution metrics of how long it takes to file, the space we file, for example, like uh, are we filing too much in biotech and not other areas? What is our best, you know, what is uh, what is our claim to fame? That's really what we have to come to grips with because oftentimes universities like to say they're good at everything and that's that very seldom is the case. So we re- really want to make sure that we we're best at that at a particular area and that we follow that area so that we can create our claim to fame. For our University, I, I would say that biotech it is. And finally, number five, we have to maintain and position our portfolio. What that means is that we have to divest oftentimes and, and, and uh, you know, move our portfolio to address our current needs. Wow, that's really impressive all that your office is handling. And I think this is a great segue to ask you a little bit more about your office can you tell us about your office, particularly how many people you have and how it's structured? 
Yes. Now we have about 30 people in our team. 10 are 10 of them are uh, university employees. What does that mean? It means that they're there forever. They're never going to be. It's, it's like a tenured position for, for everyone from that, uh, you know, for that crowd. And then 20 are from a private organization from that. I mentioned that before. So the, uh, that we have a partnership and this partnership between UFNG and from that is a, is a contract. And that was allowed for by the new legal framework. So, so this this is fantastic. Now that we put that, it, it became like a, a success case for the country, and we have lots of people asking us how do we do it, how how we put together this contract. We have a an, an IP protection team of about six to eight people, a licensing team of about three to five people. I have people dealing with contracts. Someone, a couple working with finance, we have to have someone in communications, and then other people are operations. For example, we have a business incubator, and we have only two people on that area. But uh, yeah, we need to, to put more a little bit more effort on that and working on, on that uh, space as well. Yeah, it's a big team. It's, uh, and I'm not surprised given everything that you you have described to this point that you guys do. So. Given that and the size of your team and everything you do and how active you've been, I'd be curious to know how many invention disclosures, patent filings, license agreements, royalty revenue, and things like that your office has had in the last year. Well, last year was a bit unusual because we had to deal with a home office operation, right? And all the related issues pertaining to COVID. Yeah, so it's well, but but there was an interesting aspect of that, and 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 that's actually our highlight in terms of revenue as a license that we have on on a vaccine for canine leishmaniosis. That that is our blockbuster. Seems like everyone wanted to have a bat. So now, I mean, in, in half a year, we saw more revenue from that particular uh, license than than we had in prior years. So so this was something that was totally unexpected. Um, we have a what I would call a modest revenue uh, compared to U.S. and Europe figures, but uh, it's about two hundred fifty thousand U.S. dollars. So that's a modest, right? But uh, we've been experiencing over the last ten years a uh, uh, um, compound annual growth rate of about twenty five percent. I would love to be able to attribute that to me, but it's not. A- <laughs> I'm sitting on the shoulders of giants. A lot of people paved the way to get there. So all I'm doing is trying not to try to mess anything up. So uh, we don't really have a blockbuster license yet. But, you know, like I said, the top performer is this canine leishmaniosis vaccine. Uh, that is the only one in Brazil. And we also have some uh, technology that, that that is very uh, interesting, which is a mosquito trap that we, uh, we created particular attractants. I'm not including, uh, you know, uh, revenue or, or capital influx from companies in cooperative agreement. That might be an interesting figure as well, because we help them put together a contract and it requires a lot of IP terms that we have to negotiate with them. So over the last couple of years, we have about the, between 15 to 20 million U.S. dollars. But a, another important effort was a government funded effort that is about 20 million U.S. dollars for COVID alone. Uh, that came from federal, state, and city government. So that that's something I'd like to highlight. As I said, like our filing uh, file rate to disclosure is about 50 to 60 percent. So you only file half, right? And last year we filed about 79 patents. Our average uh, over the last 10 years is about 77, 80 patents per year. 
license agreements last year, and I think it was the impact of COVID. Was only we only had three deals. I think uh, every, the, the country went through uh, a major problem. Couldn't get people out. Uh, it, it was terrible, and 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 lots of uncertainties. So so I think that's that's what I'm attributing that to. But this year, I think once we yeah, we come to grips with how to operate. I think we're inching in about eight licenses so far. Out of the thousand patents that we have active, about ten percent have been licensed. Our per operating budget has uh, been decreasing, sadly, and most of, mostly because of government cuts and inflation. So, in order to cope with all these challenges and to keep a motivated team with competitive pay, uh, we have to drop out some IP positions that we accumulated over the years, right? Brazilian legislation is very strict about dropping out IP. So what we have to do is put together a due diligence process to demonstrate that opting out of intangible assets was the right thing to do. Yeah, those are some impressive numbers. And so congratulations to you and your team. You guys have obviously been working very, very hard. So, Gilberto, I wanted to switch gears again and ask you what you think is most important in managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think most CTOs have to, to uh, face different scenarios and adapt to local idiosyncrasies. In our case, and I think that's probably shared by everyone in, in this area, is to engage the inventor in the process and have uh, from the get-go, a very clear definition of roles and responsibilities for each one, inventors and TTO. They have to understand who is doing what. Uh, and, and, and that's I think that's the key part of that. Of course, having great ideas, inventions backed up by scientific scrutiny, and licensee cognizant of the importance and opportunity to incorporate the contribution to their products or is, is are key. All of these are key uh, issues that we have to uh, keep in mind. But the role of the inventor as the key person to provide the on-spot, real-time, provide real-time knowledge, uncompromising integrity, uh, we cannot understate that. Insofar as the TTO is concerned, we have a supporting role that has to be made clear to them. And I like to say that uh, when we best ex execute our role, translates into an invisible layer in the process. So I wanted to ask you next, Gilberto, about corporate partners and the role they play there at UFMG. I'm curious, can you tell us how you deal with foreign companies? Sure. Yeah, the, the key issue about foreign companies is that for the most part, Brazil is a big market. And that's about it. So they see us, all right, this is a place for us to sell. And let me just give you a, a number that is a very impressive number. If you look into Brazilian patent filing, we only have 20% of domestic findings. So 80% of findings in Brazil come from overseas, which means that we're a market. So to perform R&D activity, these foreign companies, they have to get some sort of blessing from their headquarters. And I can understand that. Very rarely a foreign company would put their critical part of their core business in, say, Brazil or any foreign country to perform their R&D. So we end up with Partnerships that are either risky, what do they have to lose, right? They just have that money, all right, so there's nothing to lose. Or incremental, or something something no one wants to do at headquarters. Uh, 
Another possibility is when we have government funding to support partnership, and and, and that happens. There's, for example, uh, um, IT law that gives uh, them uh, tax incentives to put money in into re R uh, and D, and then things improve a little bit, but. I find that more often than not, the financial incentives are seen a way to improve the bottom line of imp- companies impress headquarters. That's what I find. We do have exceptions, but uh, they are—they all have some history behind. For example, an MMA with of a former Brazilian company or someone that worked in the company before, and 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 these. Uh, are, are the best cases. Because, for example, let's just take the M&A case. Uh, an M&A operation usually initiates overseas, and therefore there's no need to validate a business proposition here in the country. So that's why they're successful. Could you share with us some examples of some relationship with corporate partners and UFMG? Yeah, as a, as a matter of fact, that, that's exactly what, what I'll be sharing with you. For example, we have a, a very good relationship with a SEVA. It's a French company that that we licensed the canine leishmaniosis vaccine. So they came into the country, they bought a local vaccine production facility, and then they just used that. And it's working, they had everything worked out for them. Also, Rent-A-Kill is a UK-based pest control company. I think they cover 80-plus countries. And, and, and this company purchased one of our startups, and, and this is, is for the mosquito trap. We also have Google and Cadence that that uh, purchase local companies that that we have good relationship with. But nowadays, Cadence and Google, all they're doing is recruiting our students, which is good as well. It's not a bad thing. So I wanted to ask you about some of your office's biggest success stories. And I know, Gilberto, you've mentioned a couple of them. Do you have some more that you wanted to share? Yeah, so in addition to the rent-a-kill and leishmaniosis, we're seeing a, a, an exponential growth of an AI company of ours. This is really great. I, I, I think that's pretty soon we're going to have some pretty good news on that one. But there are also a, a few other initiatives in grafting production from natural ore in ours in our state. And, and uh, for this particular case, I would call it a great success. We put together a production uh, plant for graphene, uh, and then we are basically transferring the ownership rights to, to a state-owned company. So that I, I would call a very big success. Well, Gilberto, with success also comes challenges. So I'm kind of curious to hear what you think some of your office's two biggest challenges are. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, the current financial situation of the country and the federal government aversion to fund basic science is really the, the important challenge that we face nowadays. Even as we see royalties growing, the, the licensing contracts and partnerships, we have to refill the well. And that means basic science uh, funding for the future. There's no innovation that comes out of incremental science. Uh, you see, like the cooperative agreements with companies will not sow these seeds for future innovations, although they can help, help springboard some of them. Well, the second challenge is human resources. We have a very high turnaround rate, perhaps a 15 to 20 percent per year, which means that we have, you we are uh, almost an academic organization graduating people. And in that sense, that is true. But to keep a very good team, we need money. 
in a thriving environment with great learning opportunities where people are willing to value knowledge above money. That's the, the, the big challenge. Gilberto, I wanted to switch gears and ask you about diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, because this is an important topic that's being discussed in tech transfer offices all around the world. Can you tell us if your office has any programs to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you discuss those in a little bit of detail? Yes. Well, in Brazil, we have found at very many levels, starting from early on, on the very basic education level. So let me just start by talking a little bit about the federal universities. We have an affirmative action program that sets aside half of the slots according to ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and whether they're native Brazilians, and, and whether they went to public school. Public school in Brazil accounts for 80% of the student population, but uh, they, they're, I mean, the, the way their structure is does not get them you know, to the best uh, schools, sadly. Now, when you address that problem by setting aside 50% of this loss to these students, we help mitigate this disparity. And, and it's a relatively new program. By that, I mean like over the last 10 years. The amazing result that we have is that the minorities and the privileged students were on par with the students uh, that have much better uh, means and usually of fair skin. And, and that in and of itself proves the existence of an enormous talent pool that we have to tap into. So it, it's a total success. Uh, I would say this uh, 50% quota for, for, for those students is, is amazing. Now, the TTO itself does not have any specific pro program, but what we do have is a well-represented team. In fact, we have more women than men. This does well uh, in, in, for example, interacting with our inventors, especially uh, women inventors, and, and but when they see this diverse team and also very important is the fact that our current uh, university president is a woman, because that really sets the tone for the for the entire 50,000 uh, population that is our university. Another thing that I find as a big challenge is is the gender gap in STEM, in particular computer science. It, it is our biggest challenge moving forward. Uh, but uh, you know, on the on the you know on the bright side, last week I, I was hosting a panel on graphene technology with four startup companies, all headed by women. This was really exciting. I mean, this this is this is really earth shattering. Also, as a professor, I find that the track record for women is better uh, than men on a percentage basis. I mean, I teach in computer science and physics which means that we are definitely missing uh, some talent. So we need to change that. We do have a really long road ahead, but paramount importance that goes beyond the TTO level is a strong, uncompromised, serious, continuous and effective position from the central government. I've been witnessing some distressing news on that front. But at the same time, uh, we have absolutely excellent individual entrepreneurs and business people of diverse background that are setting the, uh, the tone in the country. I think similar, something similar is taking place in other parts of the world. Well, switching gears again, I wanted to ask you about organizations that you and your team are involved in, things like Autumn and LES. Can you share with us what you are involved in and what value you think they add? Well, in Brazil, we have our own version of Autumn. It's called Fortech. 
my executive director is part of that leadership team. We do have access to the database and license figures from Autumn by sharing our license data. I find that it's vital for TTOs in particular to in order to level the playing field. On the local level, we also have a network of TTOs. And what I mean by local is like on the state level, state of Minas Gerais level. We get state funding to run it, this network, and it's a tremendous opportunity to share and learn. UFMG is the largest, but we also have local universities with the regional impact and vocational areas that make our, our state an exciting place to be. We have people working with a variety of themes and that make the, our annual meetings an incredible learning experience and place to share best practices. I wanted to ask you, Gilberto, about credentialing. Do you think it makes a difference? And here I'm talking about things like um, registered technology transfer professionals, certified licensing professional, things like that. Yeah, I'm going to give you my personal view and then I'm going to give you the country that I live in, the view. My personal view is that shouldn't matter. But, you know, my country... We have a centenary reputation for rubber stamping and notarizing papers. So I think it'll be very useful. But in fairness, I think we should not get to that. I would love not to be able to get to that and rely solely on our reputation by our track record. Well, Gilberto, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? Yeah, I, I, I love that question, <laughs> you know, genie in the lamp, right? So, I mean, I think, uh, well, first one would be become self-sufficient and bring more money than, than we cost. Right now, we're 70% there. So that's great. I think it's going to happen soon. Second one is to get people to understand that tech transfer innovation is a win-win game. The more tech we get out of the university, the more we'll attract opportunities. The concept that the tide rises where everyone is not clearly understood. And folks tend to stick to the zero-sum game on all sides. And by that, I mean like universities and companies. And finally, help enable our students to be employers and not employees only. I think those are three great wishes and best of luck to you and your team getting those realized. Well, Gilberto, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Lisa. Well, people can find me on, on LinkedIn and, and uh, email. I would say Twitter, but I have one Twitter follower. I use Twitter just to, <laughs> as a news, cur- uh, a news curation uh, apparatus. But my personal email is M-E-D-E-I-R as in Robert O S as in Sam number one at yahoo.com. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Gilberto. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, 
insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.